Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Breadfruit is probably one of the most important crops that grows across the tropics. In Puerto Rico, it's called pana, P-A-N-A. It's also called panape. For folks who haven't seen it, which is likely, or haven't tasted it, it tends to be about the size of a soccer ball when fully matured. My name is Vaughn Diaz. I am a journalist, a cookbook author, and a professor of food studies. My first book is called Coconuts and Collards, Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South. My next book is called Islas Cuisines of Resilience, and it is a book that looks at the cuisines of tropical islands across the world with a particular focus on the techniques that we share, which show a really strong connection to ancestry across the region despite distance. Breadfruit is one of those ingredients that can be found across the tropics because of how hardy it is. But before we get into that, I'm Clarissa Way, and you're listening to Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores how sustainable ingredients are grown and prepared in similar climate zones around the world. Now in the hands of different cultures, one ingredient can take on so many wondrous forms. And as the world faces dramatic upward shifts in our base temperature, climate-centric discussions on crops will become increasingly important to the resiliency of our food systems. This episode is all about breadfruit. And I always like to say that it looks like a dinosaur egg. It's like a bright green kind of scaly, very, very cool looking fruit that grows on a very, very beautiful tree. I think there are a lot of reasons why it's popular and widely consumed across the tropics. One is that it grows really, really well in tropical climates. I'm highlighting the breadfruit because of its immense resiliency. It gets its name breadfruit because of how filling it is though it tastes more like a potato than a piece of bread. And the reason why it's such an amazing starch is that it grows on trees, which means it does not have to be replanted or reseeded year after year. It's truly a gift that keeps on giving. One breadfruit tree will grow and it will be yet another one and be yet another one and then you have just a grow. And so particularly in tropical environments, right, that are environmentally vulnerable, prone to, you know, really catastrophic storms, the breadfruit tree is really important because it is so resilient and because it will just spring up out of nothing. For that reason alone, it's often seen as a tree that can potentially help feed the world. I called it Mike McLaughlin. He and his wife are behind the Trees That Feed Foundation, and they're dedicated to planting fruit trees to feed people, create jobs, and benefit the environment. Breadfruit is one of their main trees. The old cliche, I'm sure you're aware of it, you teach a person to fish rather than giving them a fish. We're teaching people how to provide their own food for decades, for lifetimes, rather than be dependent on charity. In a disaster, you need charity, of course. But long term, you need food independence. And that's exactly what we're doing. 
The Trees That Feed Foundation is a charity that has planted over 200,000 fruit trees to farmers in over 18 countries. Some of the tropical countries, they have year-round growing seasons, and yet their food production isn't very developed. A lot of these small countries are importing 50, 60, 70 percent of their food, sometimes even more. So we want local people, local farmers, local businesses to plant fruit trees, particularly breadfruit, feed themselves, become less dependent on expensive imports, more resilient to climate change. Places in the Caribbean, for example, are dependent on imported food. For decades, many countries were encouraged to grow cash crops, like bananas and sugarcane, for the export market, leaving domestic food production behind and inadequate to satisfy local demand. We compare trees, for example, to planting grains, you know, in the temperate climates of the world, you know, wheat, corn, rice, those kinds of grains are planted and there's nothing wrong with doing that, but they may not be as successful or as economic in the developing world. So planting a tree takes much less soil preparation. You've got to dig a hole. I mean, you have to do it right, but you don't have to replant a tree every year, right? That sounds obvious. And so a tree that lives for 50 to 100 years, sometimes more, is producing fruit once or twice a year. A single breadfruit tree can produce 300 fruit, you know, so you're getting half a ton of food product every year from a single tree. What we also like to suggest is to not just plant a monoculture like a grove of nothing but breadfruit, but we really like the idea of agroforests. Now, what exactly is an agroforest? A forest, by definition, is a large area covered by trees. An agroforest is the same thing, except that those trees are put there for the purpose of growing food. Really common examples are the forests in where coffee and chocolate are grown. These plants work best underneath the shaded canopy of trees, so they are often interplanted with taller trees like cashews, which create an opportunity for producers to diversify into other crops. We do breadfruit, but we do other kinds of fruit trees, okay? And so if the weather turns more dry or more wet or colder or warmer, different kinds of trees may thrive under those conditions. So when we see an agroforest, we know that what we see there is a food source that's going to be pretty resilient. So that's one of the things we like. With breadfruit and with quality fruit trees, it's not that easy because a lot of these high-quality fruit don't grow from seeds. You know, you can sprinkle seeds out there and you get to a million pretty fast. But with breadfruit, you need suckers. And so there's a couple of different ways that we can produce suckers. Some are, you know, mass-produced in tissue culture labs, the way orchids and so on are propagated. Or what we really like best is to teach local farmers and nursery people to grow trees locally. We buy the trees locally, so the money goes into the local economy with buying the trees as well as reaping and selling the fruit. So it, it helps the local economy by doing all of this. So the benefits are multiple. Breadfruit, a good-sized breadfruit, is four to six pounds. So when you cook that, if you're in local country and you have it fresh, uh, you get four to six pounds of food product. I mean, that would feed an entire family, maybe for more than one meal. And so you're going to get 300 meals like that per year. 
Now then, it's seasonal, so one of the important things that we do is to teach the local people how to preserve it. So it has a short shelf life, but if it's dried or frozen or processed one way or another, then you could have a food supply from one breadfruit tree just about a whole year. Breadfruit can be preserved by grinding it finely into a flour to make breadfruit flour. This can be combined with wheat flour to make bread, and it's a really common and traditional recipe from Fiji. There are challenges to it, though. Because it is a tree, it takes quite a while to grow. The challenge is that planting a tree, you got to wait a while before you get the benefit of it. And so if you're a kind of a poor farmer, a smallholder farmer in a developing country, that can't be your only way of earning a living. So other fruit products or other vegetables or ground provisions have to be planted as well. So we don't do that, but we recognize that difficulty. That's a challenge. Digging a hole, it's not just digging a hole in the ground. You got to prepare the hole. So there's labor there. And then you got to have water. So water can be a challenge. Once the tree is established, rainfall is enough because the trees, you know, have deep roots. But for the first six months or a year, you better water that tree. And then one surprise that we encountered was um, goats. So in a lot of these countries, goats kind of wander around. And to a goat, a young breadfruit tree is the most delicious thing that they've ever tasted. And so we've lost trees to, you know, wandering goats. But, you know, we train the farmers a little bit and we say, you got to protect the trees while they're young, protect them from goats, make sure they're watered, stake them so that nobody steps on them by mistake. We've done a lot of training. So we propagate the seedlings and then we harden them in shade houses so that when they're planted out in the field, they have the best chance of survival. We had a study once, this is a few years ago, but we think that 75% of our trees live. And so that's actually pretty good. You know, we'd love it to be 100%. You're never going to get to 100%. But if we can keep that 75% survival, we're doing pretty good. Years and years ago, decades ago, the estimate is that Jamaica alone had two million breadfruit trees. But here's the trick. Breadfruit is not invasive. In fact, it's so not invasive that it will eventually die out over time if humans don't get involved in the propagation. And so it was kind of taken for granted. Everybody's grandma had one in their backyard kind of thing. So you didn't have to value the breadfruit tree. Initially, there were a lot of challenges. Initially, there were some skeptics who said, oh, you don't need to do that. There's breadfruit trees, you know, there's one in every backyard. Well, as we just talked about, that's been fading. So there were some skeptics at first. I can tell you, those skeptics have all gone away. Like with many of the other ingredients we've highlighted in this podcast already, there isn't just one variety. The breadfruit actually has over 150 varieties. To learn more about this, I called up the people behind the National Tropical Botanical Garden in Hawaii. My name is Mike Opkinorth. I'm the director of Kahanu Garden Preserve. We're part of the National Tropical Botanical Garden, which also includes the Breadfruit Institute. You know, we manage botanical gardens here in Hawaii and actually in Florida. We have actually five gardens and five preserves. And the garden that I'm director of, we have the largest collection of breadfruit in the world here. Um, 150 named varieties from over 30 Pacific islands. This is a plant that is originally from the Pacific and as it's made its way throughout the different islands of Polynesia, you know, with the exception of Easter Island and New Zealand, which are slightly too cold for this crop, it's a very resilient plant that can grow from sea level in the tropics all the way to at least 2,000 foot elevation. 
when you put a tree like this in the ground after say three or four years, a tree reaches a stage where it starts producing, you know, it's really good harvest of fruit and breadfruit's no exception. And, and, you know, you'll get hundreds of pounds as it started from Papua New Guinea um, and made its way around Polynesia, it kind of tended to have smaller and, and less frequent seeds within the fruit. So by the time it came to Hawaii and even Tahiti, you have these seedless fruits that are full of wonderful flesh that could be cooked. However, if you went to Papua New Guinea, they actually still use the seeds for a lot of different culinary dishes. Papua New Guinea has an incredibly rich and colorful tradition of using breadfruit. The ripe breadfruits are roasted whole and the seeds are taken out, peeled, fried in butter and eaten. Leaves can be used to treat ulcers and a wash made from the sap was commonly used to prepare the bark for painting. And the wood was used for making small canoes. What the breadfruit is used for now internationally is but a fraction of what it was used for traditionally. And that's largely because of our colonial food systems, where people were encouraged to forget about their ingredients in lieu of processed or imported foods. Papua New Guinea, for example, was colonized by Germany, Great Britain, and Australia. And like many other places, large corporations financed by Western capital have actively promoted the westernization of diets. So it's not so much that these cultures have purposely abandoned their traditional foods, it's that they were forced to. The breadfruit was one of the most important trees in Papua New Guinea, and for good reason. From a mature breadfruit tree, every year, you know, you get this starchy kind of large, almost, you know, from a softball to a, a basketball size uh, fruit that can be used in so many ways, just like a potato is used. You can make flour out of it, you can make all of these things, but it's really something that you plant once and you can harvest for 50 plus years in the future. You know, do a lot of additions of say, you know, pesticides, it's a really resilient plant once you get it in the ground. The breadfruit sounds amazing, but also a little too good to be true. What are the downsides? I would say the short shelf life as raw produce. You know, if you pick an apple off of a tree and you see it in a store, it actually has a pretty long shelf life. You got weeks plus, uh, depending on your market conditions. But with breadfruit, you essentially need to do some form of processing or cook it within a few days after harvest. Sometimes you can extend that shelf life by putting it in cool water. Or one thing that we'll do here is if, you know, breadfruit's big, right? So sometimes we won't eat the whole thing at once. You can cook it and then vacuum seal it and put it into a freezer and you can keep it for a long time doing that. So once you've done it a few times, it's like so many fruits and, and different foods around the world that once you become like, ma'a or accustomed to it, it's really easy to kind of grow your knowledge base and comfort level. I'm curious, are you guys seeing people coming into the botanical gardens to learn more about what plants will grow well in their climate, especially as the world gets hotter? Absolutely. And actually that research is ongoing right now. There's a lot of people in the Pacific that are looking at varieties and how each different variety behaves. It's really important to acknowledge Dr. Diane Ragoni. She is the director of the Breadfruit Institute. She has been a long time employee of NTBG and a researcher based out of the University of Hawaii. So when she was doing her PhD, she went all throughout the Pacific and actually went to these individual communities and learned about how do they use the breadfruit? What's special about them? Are these indeed different varieties? And so Diane Ragoni actually went throughout the Pacific and brought a lot of these varieties back to Hawaii. And what's really important, I think, too, about caretaking these varieties is acknowledging the places that they come from. And that for many places in the Pacific, these, these food plants are not just part of, 
your sustenance and your food, but it's also part of your culture. And Hawaii and other places in the Pacific, part of breadfruit's story is really part of the story of the people of those places themselves. So it's really about working with each place and what's appropriate to, to do when we see a new variety somewhere. So here's a question that we all wanted to know. How do you cook the breadfruit? For me, like when I'm at home, we'll just throw it in the Instapot and steam it, right? That's kind of the the basic way to just make it on the go. You want to look for fruit that's reached a mature stage, but not ripe. And so what I mean by that is when you're looking at a breadfruit on a tree, it'll have that color change that tends to happen with ripening of fruits. But also you can kind of tell that it's still firm in its texture, but it won't be soft. Once it's soft and you can kind of squeeze it, it's then considered ripe, which then it's like good for making a pudding or something that's very sweet because as the fruit matures, those carbohydrates convert to sugars. And for Mike at the trees that feed, the sky is the limit. The fresh breadfruit can be produced many different ways. If it's the green fruit, it can be made into candy. The overripe fruit gets more sugary, more sweet. The fit fruit just in between is roasted fresh or fried or boiled. Either the fresh fruit or the processed fruit. Many, many dishes. In Jamaica, they make a milkshake type drink out of breadfruit. You've heard of waffles. There's a, a thin waffle called a pizel, and you can make that out of breadfruit, and it's delicious. A little almond flour sometimes you mix with it. My wife does a beautiful job of that. We're working with chefs to develop new recipes. It's almost just uh, limited only to your imagination. So they make a porridge with it in Haiti, and we feed that in Jamaica, and we feed that to school children. They clean the bowl up and come back to the teacher and ask for more. One of the things I think would be terrific would be to make a snack bar. Make a snack bar out of products entirely from trees and from nuts and raisins, other crops that would be totally vegetarian or, or even vegan, depending on how it's prepared. And for Vaughn, she compares the breadfruit's versatility to a potato. But the difference is that it's actually more nutritious than the potato. The other thing that folks often don't know about breadfruit is that it is incredibly nutritive. Unlike a lot of other starchy fruits, vegetables, tubers, breadfruit has a lot of protein. And Mm. basically, the longer you let a breadfruit mature, the more protein it will have. I've seen some recipes for a breadfruit-based cheese that's made by burying a breadfruit in the ground and letting it mature sometimes for up to a year. And then it naturally turns into this, what I can only imagine to be almost like a funky tofu that is really high in protein. And in addition to protein, it has most of the vitamins and minerals that we need to get through every day. And one of the ways that people sort of harness the nutritive qualities of breadfruit is by drying them and turning them into flour. So I think there personally, I think there's a lot of possibility across the world for looking to breadfruit as this really sort of important, nutritive, tasty crop that will grow really, really well. Much like a potato, breadfruit are incredibly adaptable. You can boil them, you can steam them, you can fry them, you can, you know, boil them and then grill them. You can boil them and then, you know, like saute them in a pan. You can add them to your soups, to your stews, to your broths, to your beans. In Puerto Rico, we prepare them in literally all of those ways. You can even roast them whole. Folks in the Caribbean do that quite often. But in Puerto Rico, we enjoy breadfruit often in a mofongo. 
Mofongo is a really, really popular Puerto Rican dish that's also enjoyed in the Dominican Republic and Cuba, where you fry typically plantains, but in this case, breadfruit. You fry them, you smash them, you mix them with salty pork, you stop in with garlic, and then you form them into a ball and you might have them with like a broth or a sauce on the side. It's very, very tasty. And then a lot of folks have heard of tostones, which is again, something that's also made with plantains, but it is basically just fried, smashed, and then refried. So that's a way that we often enjoy breadfruit. But so, you know, one, it grows super well. Two, it's super tasty. So far, we've waxed poetic about the breadfruit, but despite its incredible benefits, the history isn't as rosy. In the Caribbean, it has a bit of a darker history. It is, importantly, a plant that is not native to the Caribbean. It was brought to the Caribbean, much like plantains, to feed enslaved workers, and, and it grew incredibly well. To learn more about this, I spoke to Julianne Braun, who wrote a paper on the breadfruit's journey from the Pacific Islands, where it came from, to the Caribbean. And in her research, she combed over indigenous, Spanish, English, Dutch, French, and American descriptions of the breadfruit tree. The way breadfruit was portrayed and described did not match at all how it tasted, how it was used. I felt like there was almost like a scam there or some sort of propaganda, breadfruit propaganda writing that surrounded it. I found in my research was that there was a very, very specific reason why the British wanted to take breadfruit from what they called the East Indies and transplant it to the West Indies. And their reasoning was that they were heavily involved in the slave trade. There were a lot of enslaved people in Jamaica and plantation owners claimed that the enslaved were starving and they needed something, something good, something cheap to feed their workers so they could basically sustain their productivity. The British had been very active in the Pacific. They had been very active in the East Indies and they had written a lot about breadfruit. And breadfruit sort of out of these writings emerged as, well, this is something you could eat, but it's definitely, it's cheap, it grows fast. There's almost no labor involved in cultivating it. So they figured, okay, let's take it. Let's launch a mass transplantation scheme and let's take this plant, move it to the Caribbean, plant it there, and boom, basically, we have something that will sustain the enslaved people, which will sustain our plantation economy. So we have high productivity. It did not work because enslaved people did not like it. They rejected it. They did not, they did not eat it, really. In the British writings, the descriptions are, I mean, they're very lukewarm, actually. So you see people writing about it and, and say, well, I guess I'll eat it if there's nothing else around. I mean, they come in on their ships. It's a real threat of scurvy. Everyone on these ships is probably really hungry. The bread they had, and they write about this, is full of vermin, so they don't want to eat it. So, okay, breadfruit is there, and they figured out we can harvest it, we bake it, we have something to eat. I don't think I've found a single account that said, wow, this is the best, most amazing food ever. But like with many foods, it took generations before it finally caught on. And the fact that it eventually did, given the circumstances surrounding its introduction, is a testament to the adaptability of the people. 
I wouldn't be surprised to hear that, you know, enslaved people um, didn't particularly enjoy it at first. It was a new, a new food for a lot of communities, again, because it was transplanted from another region. I think like a lot of things, breadfruit really reflects um, the resilience of people, right? Because if we only have access to one kind of food, we're going to figure out how to make that food delicious. If all we have is access to yucca, we will figure out every way to make yucca taste good, right? We'll boil it and pound it. We'll turn it into fufu. We'll turn it into flour and make bread out of yeah. it, right? Like this is what human beings have done since the beginning of time, right? When right. encountering a food that maybe is unfamiliar or doesn't taste good to them at first, like we'll just, you know, we'll figure out a way to make it really tasty. Everything we eat today and have access to went through a hundred, sometimes thousands year old process of like turning something that maybe wasn't tasty in the case of a lot of things, right, is poisonous if not prepared properly. And then finding a way to make that not just edible, but, but taste really good. You know, Puerto Rico is such, I think, an interesting place to look at food origins because mm-hmm. enslaved communities and indigenous communities were often, you know, only provided these very starchy foods, right? That would keep them working, give them energy to stay in the cane fields in the case of Puerto Rico, but like were bland or didn't have all the nutrients that they needed. Human beings, will <laughs> we will figure it out. You know, like we put people out into outer space, right? And like the beginnings of that ingenuity and creativity I often see is like really emerging from, you know, from food preparation. A thank you to the Climate Cuisine team, co-producer and audio editor Kat Hong, researcher Olivia Maeda, production assistant Xin Yun, and intern Indio Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Katolchak, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. And you can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.